Coming up on Tech Nation, Jaron Lanier. You know him from such books as Who Owns the Future and You Are Not a Gadget. He's here today with Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. Then on Tech Nation Health, going after the HIV, which goes into hiding post-treatment. More than just reducing the viral load, Abivax explains its approach. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft explores the future of going to the doctor, or not, given emerging technologies. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Here's a great my credit card got stolen story. I went to Mexico and upon arriving at the airport, picked up my rental car from a major company. I used that credit card that one and only one time. Several days later, I started getting texts from my credit card company, who I'd called beforehand and informed I was going to Mexico. They asked, did I charge this? Did I charge that? The answer was no, 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 and no. I called the fraud representative and we canceled the card and determined it would be too cumbersome to send me a new card since it had to go through customs. We decided to simply mail it to my home in San Francisco and I would validate it when I returned. A week passed and as I was literally packing, another flurry of fraud alert text messages regarding charges in Mexico appeared on my phone. The last digits were new to me, and they were the numbers on the new card. Gas charges again, and no, no, no again. And when I called the credit card company, I told them that the new card was sitting unopened in my mailbox back home, and I certainly hadn't activated it. I didn't even know the numbers on the card. I couldn't have used it to charge anything in Mexico or anywhere else for that matter. And there it was, plain as day. The credit card hadn't been stolen in Mexico, but rather made to look like it was stolen there. This was an inside job. One of the aspects that was so slick about this experience was that the fraudsters knew where I was and that I had rented a car. Charges came from gas stations one for $150 and another for $225. Not insignificant, and to the untrained eye, totally appropriate. Of course, I had charged the airfare, so they knew about that too. Upon reflection, it took context to make the charges believable. And then I remembered that I had called the credit card company in advance, and they had dutifully entered when I would leave and return. So where was the leak? Good question. You would need all the data to hazard a guess. Think about it. What does it take to connect the dots and make realistic charges? Who had what data? How did they get it? How did they piece it together? And what might they do next? From a human point of view, it wasn't so surprising that the first credit card had been stolen. But the second card being stolen rang a very loud bell. 
How do you steal a credit card that the owner hasn't received yet? The presumption on the part of the fraudsters was that the new card had been delivered. Standard operating procedure. It was thievery without a doubt, but it went the extra mile to make it look like other people did it. Send the fraud investigators off in the wrong direction. And if there's one level of indirection, why not others? I felt pretty helpless and wondered what consumers could do about it, you and I, and felt like the answer was not much, other than to participate fully when you get a notification of potential fraud. Your personal experience just might crack the case. Yes, this was a cat and mouse game, all right, or rather, a card and mouse game? Forgive me. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Jaron Lanier, who has provided us with sociotech insights since the 1980s. He's here today with a new book on virtual reality and reality itself. Then on Tech Nation Health, efforts to keep HIV undetectable for longer and longer periods of time. Dr. Hartmut Ehrlich, the CEO of Abivax, tells us about their approach. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft explores the future of going to the doctor and how that might change. Jaron Lanier is one of the co-founders of the first virtual reality startup in the 1980s, and he's gone on to write many books on the impact of technology. Today we talk about his latest, Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. Well, Jaron, welcome back to Tech Nation. I am so pleased to be back. It's one of my very favorite shows. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much. Um, now, I know you've been immersed in, conceiving of, talking about every verb you can think of with regard to virtual reality since the 1980s. Now, when you first started and you, you co-founded VBL, you actually built a product the 80s is a long time ago. What were you thinking virtual reality was then versus what it is today? Well, it was kind of two different things back then, and it still is those two different things, I suppose. One of the things was a new technology that we could sell that could be a viable startup. And in those days, it cost 
at least a couple of million dollars, and that's in the dollars of those days, not even correct, it'd probably be like four million now, uh, just per person in VR. So our customers were big labs, government agencies, big universities. There there was no sense of like a hacker, you know, market or consumer market. Um, but then there was this whole other level. For me, it was about... A very personal issue. I, I had just had this uh, incredibly lonely and sort of dark childhood. Uh, my mom died when I was a kid. And I had just this this dream, this obsession of trying to connect with other people because I felt so isolated after her death. You know, and I, the metaphor that came to mind that I should have put in the book, but I I thought of it since I finished the book, was that other people's heads were like these distant stars, these beautiful things you see at night, but they're totally inaccessible. It would take a million years to get to them. And I felt that way about other human beings. They were like these beautiful orbs just out there, but unreachable. And so I imagined like a technology that could share what's really going on inside people's heads with one another. And uh, I was really inspired by surreal art, actually, Hieronymus Bosch, especially. I used to stare at Hieronymus Bosch, and I used to think how amazing that somebody could create something and that you could relate to it, even though it was totally unreal and bizarre. And what, what an amazing thing. And so I imagined something like that that would be live and that you could be in. And I, I always had this dream of it. So it was also that for me. So it was this really strange combination of this expensive industrial technology and this little kid's uh, dreams, you know, and hopes. And that was back in the 80s. Well, a whole lot of stuff's happened in those, is it 50 years? 40 years. No, it's, well. I don't know. I can't do math when I we're think getting about all that We're time. getting close to 40 years. <laughs> it's kind of freaky. Yeah. Can I tell you a story? Sure. At the turn of the century, 99 or 2000, I was giving a lecture over in computer science in, in uh, Stanford. And a freshman student came up to me and looked at me with big eyes and said, Jaron Lanier, you're still alive? <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I intend to stay that way. Let's yeah, be very clear. <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny. In, in in computer years, it's I don't know a century. Absolutely. Yeah, and with all of our particular technologies and putting it everywhere, and all of this stuff is going on. It's a very multifaceted and nuanced field today. I mean, it's very yeah. Different. There are all these different flavors of it. Uh, there's the kind where you can't see the real world anymore, uh, and these days we have to call that <laughs> something. We, I, I, what I've been saying is classical occlusive virtual reality to distinguish it from this other stuff that could be called augmented or mixed reality, where you can still see the real world and there's stuff added to it, which has been my fascination for some years now. And uh, at Microsoft, we actually put out the first example of one of those that you could really walk around in, which is called a Hololens. Um, uh, and then there's all these other versions. There's sort of a 360 video, which you can get very simply by just putting your phone in a viewer and looking around. And a lot of people have seen these things by now, but they're all really distinct forms. It's like uh, it's like saying that, oh, I don't know, movies and television and photography are all the same thing when they're all actually pretty different and they have their own cultures. And that'll become more clear, I think, as people get more experience. No longer the black box, little <laughs> black box called virtual reality. Some of it is a little. You know, the thing that has really annoyed me a little, if I can say that, is um, 
everybody does vision first. So there's all of these different ways to see into virtual reality, some better than others. But people don't think about what we call haptics, which is the touch and feel. So right now, it's a lot easier to look around inside a space than it is to, say, pick up an imaginary musical instrument and play it as if it were real. And also, most of the experiences aren't social, which is really where the magic happens. There's too many solitary ones. So those two things, the, the haptic side of it and the social side of it, are kind of lagging behind. And probably most people who think they've seen virtual reality haven't seen it with those two elements really done well. And that's a huge shame because, to my mind, they haven't seen it at all until they experience the whole package. Well, although I personally only read instructions when I absolutely have to, it's a last resort for me. It's mm -hmm. been a whole lifelong thing. They almost didn't let me out of first grade because <laughs> I didn't didn't read the instructions or didn't follow the instructions in the workbook. And I was like... And they said, well, she can't it's phonics. She can't read. And my parents said, read. And I went, I started reading. And they went, well, we don't know how that could have happened. <laughs> and I yeah, was like, and I've well. never followed the instructions, even when they're pictures like they had not there. And Nobody yet, likes it when you're an exception to the, their theory. I no, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's but really true. I very much appreciated you wrote just part of the little section there, uh, how to read your book, which I thought was good. Ah, yeah. Well, tell people how to read your book. Well, this book has an unusual structure because it's both an introduction to virtual reality. So it's uh, what you could call popular science writing, and it goes through all of the different uh, senses, vision, hearing, touch, and all that. But then it's also an autobiography. And it's also kind of a book of philosophy. And what I did is I alternate. I have chapters that go back and forth between science writing and autobiography. Now, they actually do connect together in stealthy ways. And what I'm suggesting is that um, the way – uh, the way we started to build virtuality out for one sense organ and then another and then another in the 80s also kind of reflected the way I was growing out of my childhood and learning to become an adult. But then it also reflects the way Silicon Valley was growing up because I, it's also a, a biography of Silicon Valley. It's trying to capture what it was like really early before it was organized and when it was a lot goofier than it is today. Um, and so it's all of those things. And you, you don't have to read it straight through. You can just read the story chapters or you can just read the science chapters if that's your choice. But then a lot of the real action happens in long footnotes. So it's even trickier. Uh, and you'll say, <laughs> yes, and then – and you'll say, and we'll talk about that later. And sure enough, you do. But you got to find it later. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, it's a pretty um, – it's got a lot in it for one book. And I know that that's not the fashion these days. These days, people like little quick summary things. But this is more a return to the days when a book might be like this whole mansion that you would explore for a year. And it's that kind of book. And I th I hope there's still a market for it. There seems to be. People seem to like it. But that is the kind of book it is. It's a, it's a different structure. And you can read it a number of different ways. One way to read the book, although you didn't actually say this, but I happen to like it, is that you can just skip through and read in order each of the 51 definitions of virtual reality. Yes, it has these different definitions of virtual reality strewn throughout it, just kind of interrupting everything else. And there, um, uh, that is one way to read it because there isn't any single perfect definition of virtual reality. Virtual reality is a moving target. It's a fuzzy target. So I tried to approach it from a lot of different angles. 
You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jaron Lanier, one of the co-founders of the first virtual reality startups in the 1980s. You know him from his books, Who Owns the Future? and You Are Not a Gadget. He's here today with Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. Well, this book answers some questions I've had on my mind for the better part of the several decades that I've known you now, and that is, I've always wondered how it is that you came to have this sort of incredible sensitivity to the technology and its impact that others do not, and and I don't mean that in a futurist predictive way, but rather in just seeing it differently, and um, uh, I think you know, it's important to talk about your experience. You talked a little about it earlier in the interview, but uh, your mother was Viennese, survived a concentration camp. Your father's family was almost wiped out with the, uh, in the Ukrainian pogroms. And here you were as a young baby, and they moved to Western Texas near the New Mexico and Mexico borders. Why did they do that? Well, you know... I don't know if I can ever fully know the answer of, of what what my parents were thinking when I was a baby. But what I think was going on was that they were still running. I think that they were still running away from Nazis and, and uh, other violent anti-Semites in Europe. And they wanted to go to the most obscure place possible, but someplace that had a good university. And if you tr- if you cross those two things, you kind of end up with southern New Mexico. Uh, I think that's that at that time was the most obscure place in the world with a good university. <laughs> <laughs> and and that it was the university was there because of White Sands Missile Range. It just happened to be a gathering point uh, of weapon scientists that led to a flowering of all other kinds of related engineering and science disciplines. So there was a spectacular math department and one of the first good computer science departments. And they sent you across the border to go to school, to Mexican school. Yeah, you know, in those days, the border was relaxed. It was a sweet place. Going across into Mexico was more like what it might feel like to go into someplace like Italy today. It wasn't some alien dangerous place. It was this very, you know, romantic kind of a place, different culture, uh, flowers everywhere. Um, it was, uh, kids went across to schools all the time. It wasn't considered strange. It would just be like sending a kid uh, from San Francisco to a school in Oakland or something like that. It was just like another place that was nearby. And it was... Uh, uh, I mean, it was chaotic. It was still Mexico. It was kind of surreal. But it wasn't like this dark, hellish place that it became uh, recently. I think it's finally getting a little better. And so, again, we have an- another perspective. And then this horrific automobile accident when, was it nine? Yeah, my mom died in an auto accident. And remarkably, it was when she was driving back from uh, having earned her first driver's license. Um, and because after, after her liberation, she lived in New York where you don't need to drive. So moving out there, uh, one eventually has to learn to drive. And, uh, so she did. And it was a single vehicle accident. Um, your father was quite injured. Very badly. Yeah. And 
for many years, I blamed myself. I thought I had upset her and I might have been to blame. Although years later, it came to light that actually there was a flaw in the type of car she was driving that might very well have been the cause of it. Of course, we'll never know. We'll never know. But, you know, after a shock, we now know two things can happen, sometimes both. Um, this is, you know, classic under PTSD. You can have a numbing, a dissociation from the world around you and or a super clarity about the details of living. And for the first time, you know, when reading your book, um, most people come in here if they're going to talk about virtual reality and they say, look at the technology, look at the technology. And you're saying, well, look at the clarity of human perception when the virtual reality session ends. And it's like, that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. You know, back Back in the day, <laughs> here I'm like the elder, yeah. back in the 80s, in Pleistocene times, back when people had tails. And <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, in virtual reality, we sometimes did, actually. That's true. That's yeah. true. Uh, <laughs> Just have to distinguish for the listeners. Yeah. But uh, back in those days, something I used to like to do after in a virtual reality demos, I'd put out a rose or or maybe sometimes like a mineral, like a geode or something. And when the person would come out, they would look at that. And you, you have like heightened perception of the world once you have something to compare it to. And that moment after the demo was over was always more interesting to me than what was in the demo. Because, I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves about the nature of what you can do with digital representation. It's never going to be as deep as reality. Uh, and it's always going to be kind of canned and constrained by whatever preconceptions went into the software that made it. And it's there's this other way that digital worlds can always kind of morph to, from one to the next. So they're all, they all take on a kind of similarity with one another that isn't true for real world things. Um, and and so, you know, I think this notion of using virtuality as a way to perceive reality better is really powerful and connects virtuality with other media. I mean, I think when you read books, you perceive reality better. And and, and, and uh, a fine movie should be like that, too. I mean, this this is about expanding your mind and becoming more sensitive, becoming smarter, becoming wiser. Uh, and if we can't do that with our new media, what are we doing? You know, so that's, yeah. I think it's really interesting, <laughs> the idea that you're experiencing all this virtual reality. And then when you come out of it, it's almost you become more human. Your human sensibilities, senses, all of that really comes into focus. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, digital technology by itself doesn't even exist. You know, like all it can do is help us um, think or feel more deeply there's it doesn't have any power of its own without us you know I, I i used to say if you take a computer and you put it on some alien planet to aliens that don't share a culture with whoever set those bits in place all they'll see is a lava lamp with you know things moving <laughs> it emits heat it's a it's a cool lava lamp but but it's really uh, computers are just reflections of us they're they're not anything on their own you often write about and talk about the ethical implications and the social implications of technology. Can you talk about it all, the ethical and social implications of virtual reality? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard topic. <laughs> what happened when I was, uh, when I got totally enthralled with this stuff when I was uh, a young teenager back in the 70s, um, 
Uh, I I also came across the work of somebody named Norbert Wiener, who's one of the earliest computer scientists. And he had brought up a concern uh, in a few of his books, but one especially called The Human Use of Human Beings, where he talked about how if you had computers and continuous feedback with people, the computer could start to act like a behaviorist scientist and gradually control the punishments and rewards and feedback of that person and could change people. You could almost have like this form of mind control. And he has this comforting little passage at the end of that book where he says, but of course, in the real world, we could never have some central giant computer facility that would be connected wirelessly to everybody all the time with some device that would run on a battery that they'd always have. It's totally unimaginable. Just can't have that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but of course, that's exactly the world we've created. But anyway, back in those days, what I realized is that the ultimate user interface for behavior modification or mind control using a computer would be the same virtual reality system that I had originally become totally enthralled with as a way to share dreams with people and be less lonely, that exactly the same instruments could be applied in this horrible way, that it could be the creepiest thing ever. And and virtual reality, in a way, has the most extreme version of the double nature of computing. It can either be the most, you know, a most expressive, far-reaching, beautiful form of communication into the future that opens up new channels between people and helps us understand and express things better. Or it can be the creepiest device in which we lose ourselves and humanity might, you know, suffocate itself in bizarre, creepy power struggles for mind control. Both of those things are really true at the same time. Neither of them invalidates the other. They're co-present. And, um, that's hard. You know, like it's hard to negotiate that. You have to accept the dual nature. It's not just virtual reality. It's everything. But with virtual reality, it's it's clearer than in some other kinds of computing. And it's clearly all at the hand of man. Yeah. That's a tough deal. That's <laughs> a tough deal there. It's us. It's yes. us again. Yeah, that's right. In 1982, you bundled up your VR system, the first one that you built there at VRL, and uh, and went to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Now, today that's like 150,000 people. It's just completely mind-blowing. What was the Computer Electronics Show like in Las Vegas in 1982? And what did you bring with you and what happened? <laughs> yeah, well... Um, <sighs> We had this idea that you could have a device on your person that would measure your vital signs as well as other things going on and give you continuous feedback and store data to help your health. Now, remember, nobody had a phone. Nobody had a phone. So today, this is a very familiar idea, and a lot of people have fitness bands or whatever, but it's possible this was the first attempt to make a consumer one. I'm not sure. But at any rate, we thought this would be a great market. So we built this little thing, and it would attach to a personal computer, and it would have a little bit of memory on it, and you, it was a clip you put on your finger. It was not a it was not a wristband. The form factor was a thing on your finger, and it measured your pulse and your breathing and various things. And I, uh, <laughs> I made, a, a, I would say, a poor decision for the user interface, which is I had these 8-bit graphics that animated your guts in real time as estimated by this device. So you watched your lungs expand and your heartbeat. That was was a poor decision. (laughs) Yeah, it it grossed people out, and it looked just – it had this kind of grotesque feeling, and um, 
it was not it was not the greatest user interface. Uh, I've gotten better at them since then. Good. Well, that's just it. Nobody said, "Wow, look at what good graphics you made." They went, "Ooh, that's terrible." Yeah, we, de- we definitely we definitely grossed some people out. But I mean, people haven't seen any graphics. I mean, this was really um, very cutting edge for graphics even like a lot of, you know it was this was really early so uh the fact that we even got it to work is is was kind of amazing uh yeah uh yeah i should mention some of my old buddies who are still around doing things uh walter greenleaf tom zimmerman uh yeah steve bryson um i don't even know what section they put you in <laughs> in those days yeah they were, i don't remember either i mean this is so long ago I'm speaking with Jaron Lanier, the author of Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, efforts to keep HIV undetectable for longer periods of time post-treatment. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft looks at the future of going to the doctor or not. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Jaron Lanier, the author of Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. We just started talking about mixed reality or augmented reality. You mentioned a little earlier about augmented or mixed reality. Let's talk about that category, if you will, of virtual reality. Sure. Well, this is the notion that you can still see the real world, but there's extra stuff added to it that seems to be there. And it's super challenging to do on a lot of levels. Um, it only makes sense if you can walk around to see different places that are augmented. And the the most familiar version of this 
for for I'd say the average person is Pokemon Go, but that's a super super crude version. And now we're starting to see more phone based versions from Google and Apple. But to really experience it first person, where you're just looking at the world and wherever you look, the stuff seems to be there. Of course, you need some kind of headset or something that's that's tied to your eyes and. Um, it's really challenging to do that because that you have to have it perfectly registered and it has to somehow track itself, and you have to have some way of combining the real and virtual world uh, with fancy optics. And uh, so uh, we have an existence proof it can be done with with a device that's uh, uh, been out for a few years now as a, a developer edition. Uh, and an existence proof is. It means that we can actually do it. I mean, before this, it wasn't clear if you even could build a tracker that would be good enough. Or if I mean I think the everybody knew you could do the optics with the tracker and also just getting a package that doesn't boil your head you know and will last for a while on battery just the whole power and heat and everything I mean I I'm, I think it's a really cool uh, first step. Well, I may have mispronounced the name earlier. I meant to say VPL, which stood, f which is the name of the company. You yeah, virtual programming languages. It's virtual programming languages. So you were looking to develop a number of languages? Well, you know, for me, uh, part of the mission of virtual reality was to create this new form of communication where people would share more what, what of internal experience with each other. And I didn't imagine that happening through some sort of psychic connection because I'm not sure the science or the logic of that idea even makes sense. But the way I imagined it is we'd have devices where you could improvise what goes on in a virtual world, like, you know, sort of instant programming, where you'd play something like a virtual musical instrument or dance or do something else, and it would map through some sort of a process into one of a spectacularly large number of possible programs that could exist or shapes or forms or all kinds of things so that you'd be able to sort of play the world. And other people would too, and it would be done collaboratively. And I've um, been working towards a programming language that has that quality for all these years. And I've built models um, uh, seven or eight times at this point. And it's a, it's a very challenging idea. And the precise definition of what I'm trying to do kind of shifts over time with the different attempts. But the general idea is maybe almost like the reverse of what people do with machine learning. So with machine learning, you take all these different examples that come in, and then you turn them into just a, a categorization, into sort of a more compact thing. So I've say, seen it before. I can do it again. Here I've are all these yeah. images. Oh, those are the ones with dogs. Those are the ones with cats. So if you could take something a little like that but go in the other direction, where you could do something simple, but it generates all of these different uh, things that are that are really such a wide variety that you could you could learn to get at a wider variety of possible programs and designs uh, than you could if you did them meticulously step by step. And the thing is, from the human side, we know people have this capacity. Uh, my, my favorite example is when somebody learns to improvise jazz at a piano. They're solving math problems faster than they can do any other way just to be able to do it at all. And so there's some kind of a link between the, the haptic cognitive system, the motor cortex, which is this huge part of the brain, and logical reasoning and creativity that people can sort of pull together in real time. It's an amazing thing. So uh, this hypothetical kind of programming, I call it phenotropic programming, if you want a term. Uh, <laughs> For those but, of you who really wanted a term. <laughs> yeah, but this hypothetical future form of programming would be a little like that experience of playing jazz on a piano. So that would be the human side of it. And then the computer side of it 
would probably look a little like machine learning running backwards. Um, there's there are a lot of really interesting issues in it, and I've I feel like I've gotten a few steps into it. I certainly haven't figured it out completely. I must say that most people can recognize it's like, oh yeah, these people are playing jazz or they're just they're just riffing, you know, many variations on a theme. And it's like, well yeah, that's what they do. But you can kind of step back a second and say, Yeah, they actually aren't quite sure what they're gonna play when they're playing it. They don't have it all worked out. <laughs> no, what's amazing is if you take a jazz pianist and then you, you put them in front of some sheet music and you say, Okay, work this out, work out how you're gonna play on these changes it takes them a really long time to do what they can do spontaneously in real time when you sit them in front of a computer. And, and that, to me, is fascinating. So there, there's all, there are powers in the human brain that we can access with the right interface. And I think particularly the cross between intelligence and body motion is something that we need to explore more. We talked a little earlier about how virtual reality, like any technology, can be used for good and for not so good. Um, I'm always a little concerned about public perception. Where should we be now as a society? Well, I mean, the society has, in my view, been, I don't know what word to use, perverted by poor digital technologies in recent years. And Example? Um well, for one thing, nobody knows what's going on. What what happened in the last election? We don't know. For another thing, our society's become meaner. It's routine now. Um, I was just listening to a woman who wrote a book about autism in her kids, and she's getting death threats from people who think she should have a different attitude about her kids. Death threats over child rearing? I mean, this sort of thing has happened before, but just the the routine nature of of uh, people getting ganged up on and, and bullying and ruined lives is actually new. It's just more efficient than it used to be, I guess you could say. And there's been an, a um, a kind of a strange synergy between the way technology has evolved and what I view as um, unsustainable concentration of wealth and power around people like me as it happens, but that doesn't make it any better for me because I want the world to be sustainable and viable for my daughter and her children and all that, you know. So there, there are all of these problems, and um, it's it's been hard to see because I, I, I kind of warned about these scenarios with some specificity over the years, and I got a lot of flack about it from my fellow geeks in Silicon Valley. But now... Who owns the future? Yeah, that caused a lot of... A lot of people were unhappy about that. And I th I think it kind of turned out to be right. And, uh, uh, yeah. But the problem... <laughs> I'd like to be able to enjoy that. I'd like to say, oh, ha, ha, I was right. you know. But the thing is, you don't want to be right about dark things. Like, I want to be wrong. I'd much rather be proven that I was, you know, that I was wrong and that I, I should have been more optimistic. But the good news is I feel a lot of people in the tech community are starting to recognize it and feeling like we have to take responsibility and do something about it. I really believe Silicon Valley has a good heart. I really believe that the people are mostly really decent and well-intentioned. And so I'm still optimistic on that basis, but day to day, it can feel kind of dark lately. Yeah. And I think that especially for people who have no control over technology, the information about them is they have no idea where it is. It can feel pretty overwhelming. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I go around and talk to college students sometimes, and it's interesting to listen to them now because, say, 10 years ago, they would say, this is my generation and you have no right to criticize what we're doing. You're old. You don't get it or, you know, that kind of thing. And now there's almost like this desperation. Um you know, I hear things like, I feel addicted to this. I'm I'm addicted to social media. I feel like it's making me into a more nervous and unkind person, and I can't get off it. And I feel like the whole world is being destroyed under my feet, and I don't, I, I feel a sense of hopelessness. And I don't know what to do about it. And what I'll tell them is just get off this stuff for six months to get to know yourself. And they'll say, I can't. And this this notion that people feel helpless even just to make basic choices about whether to use a service or not is um is sad you know it it's not the world we were hoping to build i don't think well jaren always a pleasure you know you're always welcome on tech <laughs> so to, to end on a bummer note to end on a bummer note but it's like time's going to go on jaren time's oh, going to go on you're going to be here i'm going to be here yeah. and uh and in in fact, most people are white hats, as we say. They are. I still believe that. It's such a pleasure to be on. My guest today is Jaron Lanier. The book is Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. It's published by Henry Holt. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health. Reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, efforts to keep HIV undetectable for longer and longer periods of time post treatment. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft explores the future of going to the doctor or not with the introduction of new technologies. Current treatments can reduce the viral load in HIV-positive patients to undetectable levels below any diagnostic available. And yet, the virus is not gone. Rather, it's said to be in hiding. Dr. Hartmut Ehrlich is the CEO of Abivax. Well, that's exactly the problem that we are trying to address. When you treat patients with, uh, with HIV, uh, you are able to, in most cases, to, to completely eliminate the virus from the blood. Um, and this is really uh, a, a sign that the, that the therapy for HIV has come a long way in the last 10 to 20 years. However, uh, what we have accomplished is we have actually turned a, a deadly disease into a chronic disease because patients need to take their drugs every day for the rest of their lives in order to keep the virus at bay. If you interrupt the treatment, if you stop your current medication, then all patients will come back uh, in a matter of 10 to, uh, to around 20 days with, uh, with the virus in the blood, and as such, they will be infective again. So with all the progress that we have been, uh, been making, uh, we have not been able yet to, uh, to really provide a functional cure for these patients so that they stay 
for prolonged periods or even lifelong uh, without detectable virus in the blood once they stop the treatment. Well, where is this HIV? Uh, the HIV, when it infects a, uh, a person, when it infects uh, an individual, is very rapidly, the virus is very rapidly moving into immune cells. These are lymphocytes, these are monocytes and, uh, and macrophages, and the virus is actually able to insert its genetic material into the human DNA in the, uh, in the nucleus of these, uh, of these cells. And this, um, what we call then reservoir, which is the, uh, the immune cells which are infected, uh, have been resistant to any kind of treatment so far. So let me ask you this. The virus is long gone. What it did was put the programming into the DNA of the immune cells so that once the immune cells can kick in, the programming is there. It'll create the HIV. It'll create viruses. Once the pressure of the treatment is off, absolutely, the immune cells will then start producing new viruses. Tricky, tricky, tricky. But you're after it. That's the mission of our company. Now tell us what you're doing. Okay. So we have identified a small molecule, which we call ABX464, which has a complete new mechanism of action. We understand most of it. I must admit, we don't understand all of it. But I'm going to give you the story how we are seeing it. So um, this molecule uh, that we are talking about, ABX464, is actually binding to, uh, to RNA, which is the material that is used by human cells to transport the genetic information from the nucleus to the place where proteins are being synthesized. So that's your DNA, then you have the RNA. Then you RNA, have RNA, and so then you have protein. Protein. So the RNA transcribes the DNA and right. creates the protein. Absolutely. Now, the virus actually needs a large stretch of, uh, of RNA in order to produce three structural proteins that are essential for viral replication, for the growth of the, uh, of the virus. Now, normally, the, uh, the human cellular machinery would cleave this large stretch of RNA into small fragments, which, of course, is not in the interest of the virus. The virus, therefore, essentially invented a, uh, a protein that is synthesized very early on during the, uh, the infectious cycle, which prevents the human machinery to cut these, uh, this, this large stretch of, uh, of RNA into, into small pieces. This is the reason for the virus to actually be able to, uh, to, uh, to replicate. Now, what ABX464 does... That's, it, your, that's your compound. ABX464 is our compound. It binds also to this uh, large stretch of RNA, but it blocks the activity of the viral protein, which is called REV, R-E-V, 
And in that situation, the human machinery then kicks in and actually cuts this uh, large stretch of RNA into small fragments. And, the, and then the HIV doesn't have it to work with. And then the HIV doesn't have it to work with. Now, that only explains why the virus doesn't grow. But the big question that Abivax, of course, has and is trying to address is why does ABX464 lead to actually a reduction of the reservoir? Because the reduction of the reservoir is necessary in order to get to the, uh, to the functional cure. And as we have seen in, uh, in our latest clinical trial, we can actually reduce the, uh, the, uh, the reservoir. And the most likely hypothesis at this point in time, which we are following up in the, uh, in the laboratory, is that these small pieces of RNA that uh, are produced in the presence of ABX464, our compound, these small pieces get translated into small peptides, into antigenic peptides, with these small peptides, with these um, viral uh, um, sequences on the, uh, on the outer surface of the immune cells, they will then be recognized actually by our immune system. The immune system will kick in and actively destroy the cells. That's the working hypothesis. We know they're doing it. You have to have an hypothesis to say why you think it works. Absolutely. We know that they are doing it. We know that from the latest clinical trial. It is up to us now to translate the hypothesis into the facts. So you've completed a phase two trial on this. Are you ready to go to phase three or do you need more? Um, that's a very good question. In our trial which was in, uh, in a total of, uh, of 30 uh, HIV-infected patients, where we gave ABX464 for a total of, uh, of 28 days. We were seeing that this reservoir, which is in the blood, um, could actually be reduced in half of the patients by an average of, uh, of 40%. Now, we all realize that 40% reduction is not enough. We need to go, go much higher. And this is sort of uh, the, 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 the work we have cut out for ourselves going forward. Um, I could hear the disappointment in your voice when you said only half the patients, 40% reduction in the HIV reservoir. I'm not aware of any reduction in HIV reservoirs from medications before? Well, actually, you are, you are correct about your statement, but uh, I hope there was no disappointment in my voice because this was a very, very exciting result that we have been seeing there for the first time. The key opinion leaders that we were working with in the clinical trial said if you reduce the reservoir in anywhere between 25 or 30 percent of the patients, that's going to be big. That's going to be a sort of major accomplishment. We were much above that. But as I said, we are only halfway there because we need to continue now. We treated initially the patients for 28 days. 
So in the currently ongoing study, we are continuing now of treating them longer. We are treating them for, uh, for three months in order to see whether a, uh, a prolongation of the treatment is getting us closer to, uh, to our goal of achieving uh, a, uh, uh, a larger reduction of the uh, uh, reservoir. And in addition to that, we are working on other approaches like stimulating the, uh, the immune system in order to kick in and help the, uh, uh, the system to actually uh, eliminate the cells that are carrying the viral DNA. Dr. Hartmut Ehrlich is the CEO of Abivax. More information is available at abivax.com. That's Abivax, A-B-I-V-A-X, abivax.com. I remember when one of my kids was little and I called the pediatrician's office to describe his symptoms. The nurse on duty said, don't come in, please don't come in. I asked Dr. Daniel Kraft, chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health, why did she say that? You were actually doing early telemedicine. You were on the telephone uh, <laughs> transmitting information about symptoms of your child and the clinician there making a judgment that don't come in and get everyone else sick um, and here's maybe what to do about it. And so we've been practicing sort of telehealth for a while. Even in the radio era, there was this idea that you could be doing healthcare without having to come and be face-to-face with your clinician. And I want to emphasize that Having human touch and FaceTime with your your doctor, nurse, pharmacist is incredibly important. But we do now have this explosion of of technologies which can really and has started to shift the future and today of of clinical practice. Um, Today in San Francisco, if you need an appointment with a specialist, you still might be waiting one or two months to get that visit to see the dermatologist uh, or other specialist. And then you're sitting in the waiting room for 66 minutes on average, even for the primary care visit, which lasts maybe 12 to 15 minutes. What if we could use some of these new technologies, whether it's FaceTime and and Skype, to replace or augment, not always replace, but augment a lot of these visits? You can now, on your smartphone, download a dozen different apps where you can pay some money with your credit card and talk to a doctor. Even some insurance companies are uh, paying for that sort of service. It's not usually, again, your clinician, but the future, I think, is going to be where you may go in for your first visit or two, but for your follow-ups, let's say you've had a little surgery. Do you need to drive two hours, take half a day off of work for them to take off the bandage and look at your stitches and say, that's fine. (laughs) See you back in two weeks. No, you could be doing that with a camera on your smartphone and doing an e-visit. So that's that's already happening in many forms. The challenge often is still the the reimbursement element. Well, if I'm your doctor or your surgeon and I'm not going to get paid to do that virtual wound check, I'm going to make sure you come in because that's the only way that the billing piece works. So we have to align the incentives. We're seeing the ability now to do digital empathy. If you're going home from a... Ooh, I could I could sign up for that. Did you? Well, you want to feel like you're being cared for. Yes. And, you know, your surgeon after... Let's say you needed a, a, a knee surgery, a total knee replacement, for example, and you're heading home, and it's a pretty common procedure. We kind of know what's going to happen in the average day, one, two, three, four. But, you know, your surgeon, likely or not, is probably not going to call you and say, hey, Moyer, how are you doing? But what if you get a little text from your doctor saying, hey, how are you feeling today? Are you, are you same, better, worse? Are you able to get up and walk? Are you doing your exercises? Are you having any, any pain in your calf, which might indicate um, that you have a, a risk of a pulmonary uh, embolism or uh, uh, that, that could be picked up proactively? So there's now companies, one called Health Loop, that's building that sort of feedback loop system that's being used in orthopedic and other type of procedures. And they're calling it sort of digital empathy that can give you some touch points that if you're not on the normal path, 
you're not going to wait till you get sick and end up back in the emergency room. Your clinical team can see that on a dashboard and, and reach out and call you or have you change your, your approach at home. So those sort of simple feedback loops exist. We're moving now to that the virtual visit may be augmented with augmented or virtual reality. You both put on your sort of equivalent of a, um, an Oculus Rift or um, Microsoft HoloLens, both on the market today, and you can feel like we're virtually in the same room looking at each other as avatars or even um, you know your favorite character, and, and that can be engaging. We're seeing it for psychological follow-up. USC, um, the Center for Body Computing, has collaborated with many folks in the entertainment world, and they've taken the skills of video games and uh, special effects, and they now can have you see a virtual psychologist who watches your voice and eye gaze and can respond appropriately, and, and f- particularly in folks who have uh, difficulty accessing psychological follow-up or can only come every one or two weeks. That can be an amazing touch point, and they've studied these sort of virtual clinics and have uh, better outcomes and care. And... You know, each of us is different. If you're a kid growing up on Snapchat and, and, and Facebook and Twitter, you're going to have a different mentality than, you know, the average 75-year-old, even if they're a tech-savvy 75-year-old. So we're seeing that the interfaces are going to change based on your age and personality and need. Chatbots are already here, and there's now several chatbots where they will do basic screening. Do you have... Uh, uh, Zika virus if you've just traveled and ask you simple questions. It might, if you have belly pain, it could help you figure out whether you might have appendicitis and recommend that you actually go to the emergency room. Now, these aren't going to replace clinical care, but they could be the equivalent of your screening phone call where you talk to a nurse and they go through a, a triage list. And, and chatbots don't get sick. They don't get sick. They're up at 2 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> and they can learn you, right? You're going to have, hopefully, you know, Dr. Siri on your smartphone that's going to already know, you know, already my smartphone has a lot of my health activity data on it. It might be connected by genomics. It's going to learn my personality, my voice. Actually, an interesting example, at home we just got the Jibo, which is this interactive robot. It's sort of, I, I, I bought it on Kickstarter three years ago before Amazon Echo, uh, but it does some pretty, it's a social robot. It, it can interact with you. It can help, um, you know, tell you a joke or dance. It can interact with your kids. My kids already have adopted it. You have it. to bring this in. It's fun. <laughs> but these sorts of elements are also going to be part of telehealth. You're going to be talking to your Amazon Echo or, or Google Home or, or Jibo and say, hey, Jibo, um, I'm not feeling well today. Uh, what did my sleep data tell me? Or maybe it's going to be, if I have diabetes, connected to my insulin pump and glucometer can look at my data and say, hey, Daniel, your, your blood sugars are running high. Maybe you don't have that extra piece of cake for dessert. Or Alexa, help, I fall and I can't get up. The voice elements and social elements of, of connected care are coming. And we're even seeing, I mentioned augmented virtual reality in the chatbot. Sometimes you don't want to just have a chatbot. You want to see your own doctor. So Dr. Leslie Saxon, who's a cardiologist at USC and heads up the Center for Body Computing, has done an interesting pilot where she's been turned into a, a virtual a- avatar with her, fo- her voice, her face. And when you talk to them on the app, uh, about heart disease because she's a heart disease specialist, the chatbot will show you your doctor with her face, her voice, and respond appropriately. All those will start to come together and kind of shift how we do healthcare, not to replace the doctor visit, but to augment them, and a larger percentage of care can be done remotely or to bring the specialist to you uh, when you need it. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. See you soon. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. 
Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.